Section 31 of The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Five Pack. The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. Edited by Henry Festing Jones. Chapter 24 the life of the world to come part one posthumous life one to try to live in posterity is to be like an actor who leaps over the footlights and talks to the orchestra two he who wants posthumous fame is as one who would entail land and tie up his money after his death as tightly and for as long a time as possible still we each of us in our own small way try to get what little posthumous fame we can. The Test of Faith Why should we be so avid of honorable and affectionate remembrance after death? Why should we hold this the one thing worth living or dying for? Why should all that we can know or feel seem but a very little thing as compared with that which we never either feel or know what a reversal of all the canons of action which commonly guide mankind is there not here but however this may be if we have faith in the life after death we can have little in that which is before it and if we have faith in this life we can have small faith in any other nevertheless there is a deeply rooted conviction even in many of those in whom its existence is least apparent, that honorable and affectionate remembrance after death, with a full and certain hope that it will be ours, is the highest prize to which the highest calling can aspire. Few pass through this world without feeling the vanity of all human ambitions. Their faith may fail them here, but it will not fail them, not for a moment, never, if they possess it as regards posthumous respect and affection. The world may prove hollow, but a well-earned good fame in death will never do so, and all men feel this whether they admit it to themselves or no. Faith in this is easy enough. We are born with it. What is less easy is to possess one's soul in peace and not be shaken in faith and broken in spirit on seeing the way in which men crowd themselves, or are crowded, into honorable remembrance when, if the truth concerning them were known, no pit of oblivion should be deep enough for them. See again how many who have richly earned esteem never get it either before or after death. It is here that faith comes in to see that the infinite corruptions of this life penetrate into and infect that which is to come, and yet to hold that even infamy after death, with obscure and penurious life before it, is a prize which will bring a man more peace at the last than all the good things of this life put together and joined with an immortality as lasting as Virgil's, provided the infamy and failure of the one be unmerited, as also the success and immortality of the other. Here is the test of faith. Will you do your duty with all your might at any cost of goods or reputation, either in this world or beyond the grave? 
If you will, well, the chances are one hundred to one that you will become a fattest, a vegetarian, and a tutolower. And suppose you escape this pitfall too. Why should you try to be so much better than your neighbors? Who are you to think you may be worthy of so much good fortune? If you do, you may be sure that you do not deserve it. And so on ad infinitum. Let us eat and drink, neither forgetting nor remembering death unduly. The Lord hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and the less we think about it, the better. Starting again ad infinitum. A man from the cradle to the grave is but the embryo of a being that may be born into the world of the dead who still live, or that may die so soon after entering it as to be practically still born. The greater number of the seeds shed, whether by plants or animals, never germinate, and of those that grow, few reach maturity. So the greater number of those that reach death are stillborn as regards the truest life of all. I mean the life that is lived after death in the thoughts and actions of posterity. Moreover, of those who are born into and fill great places in this invisible world, not one is immortal. We should look on the body as the manifesto of the mind, and on posterity as the manifesto of the dead that live after life. Each is the mechanism whereby the other exists. Life, then, is not the having been born. It is rather an effort to be born. But why should some succeed in attaining to this future life, and others fail? Why should some be born more than others? Why should not someone in a future state taunt Lazarus with having a good time now and tell him it will be the turn of dives in some other and more remote hereafter. I must have it that neither are the good rewarded nor the bad punished in a future state, but everyone must start anew quite irrespective of anything they have done here and must trust his luck again and go on trying it again and again ad infinitum. Some of our lives, then, will be lucky and some unlucky, and it will resolve itself into one long eternal life during which we shall change so much that we shall not remember our antecedents very far back, any more than we remember having been embryos, nor foresee our future very much, and during which we shall have our ups and downs ad infinitum, effecting a transformation seen at once as soon as circumstances become unbearable. Nevertheless, some men's work does live longer than others. Some achieve what is very likely immortality. Why should they have this piece of good fortune more than others? The answer is that it would be very unjust if they knew anything about it, or could enjoy it in any way. But they know nothing whatever about it. But they know nothing whatever about it, and you, the complainer, do profit by their labor, so that it is really you, the complainer, who get the fun, not they, and this should stop your mouth. The only thing they got was a little hope, which buoyed them up often when there was but little else that could do so. Preparation for Death That there is a life after death is as palpable as that there is a life before death. See the influence that the dead have over us. But this life is no more eternal than our present life. Shakespeare and Homer may live long, but they will die some day. That is to say, 
they will become unknown as direct and efficient causes. Even so, God himself dies, for to die is to change, and to change is to die to what has gone before. If the units change, the total must do so also. As no one can say which egg or seed shall come to visible life, and in its turn leave issue, so no one can say which of the millions of now visible lives shall enter into the afterlife on death, and which have but so little life as practically not to count. For most seeds end as seeds, or as food for some alien being, and so with lives. By far the greater number are sterile, except in so far as they can be devoured as the food of some stronger life. The Handels and Shakespeare's are the few seeds that grow, and even these die. And the same uncertainty attaches to posthumous life as to pre-lethal. As no one can say how long another shall live, so no one can say how long or how short a time a reputation shall live. The most unpromising, weakly-looking creatures sometimes live to ninety, while strong, robust men are carried off in their prime, and no one can say what a man shall enter into life for having done. Roughly, there is a sort of moral government, whereby those who have done the best work live most enduringly, but it is subject to such exceptions that no one can say whether or not there shall not be an exception in his own case, either in his favor or against him. In this uncertainty, a young writer had better act as though he had a reasonable chance of living, not perhaps very long, but still some little while after his death. Let him leave his notes fairly full and fairly tidy in all respects without spending too much time about them. If they are wanted, there they are. If not wanted, there is no harm done. He might as well leave them as anything else. But let him write them in copying ink, and have the copies kept in different places. The Vates Sacer Just as the kingdom of heaven cometh not by observation, so neither do one's own ideas, nor the good things one hears other people say. They fasten on us when we least want or expect them. It is enough if the kingdom of heaven be observed when it does come. I do not read much. I look, listen, think, and write. My most intimate friends are men of more insight, quicker wit, more playful fancy, and, in all ways, abler men than I am. But you will find ten of them for one of me. I note what they say, think it over, adapt it, and give it permanent form. They throw good things off as sparks. I collect them and turn them into warmth. But I could not do this if I did not sometimes throw out a spark or two myself. Not only would Agamemnon be nothing without the Vates Sasser, but there are always at least ten good heroes to one good chronicler, just as there are ten good authors to one good publisher. Bravery, wit, and poetry abound in every little village. Look at Miss Boss, the original of Miss Jupe in The Way of All Flesh, and at Joanna Mills, Life and Letters of Dr. Butler, 193. There is not a village of five hundred inhabitants in England but has its Miss Quickly and its Tom Jones. These good people never understand themselves. They go over their own heads. They speak in unknown tongues to those around them, and the interpreter is the rarer 
and more important person. The Vetsasseur is the middleman of mind. So rare is he, and such spendthrifts are we, of good things that people not only will not note what might well be noted, but they will not even keep what others have noted, if they are to be at the pains of pigeonholing it. It is less trouble to throw a brilliant letter into the fire than to put it into such form that it can be safely kept, quickly found, and easily read. To this end, a letter should be gummed, with the help of the edgings of stamps if necessary, to a strip, say, an inch and a quarter wide, of stout, handmade paper. Two or three paper fasteners passed through these strips will bind fifty or sixty letters together, which, arranged in chronological order, can be quickly found and comfortably read. But how few will be at the small weekly trouble of clearing up their correspondence and leaving it in manageable shape. If we keep our letters at all, we throw them higgledy-piggledy into a box and have done with them. Let someone else arrange them when the owner is dead. The someone else comes and finds the fire an easy method of escaping the onus thrown upon him. So on go letters from Tilbrook, Mirian, Marmaduke Lawson. Footnote. There are letters from these people in The Life and Letters of Dr. Samuel Butler. End footnote. Just as we throw our money away, if the holding on to it involves even very moderate exertion. On the other hand, if this instinct towards prodigality were not so great, beauty and wit would be smothered under their own selves. It is through the waste of wit that wit endures, like money. Its main preciousness lies in its rarity. The more plentiful it is, the cheaper does it become. The Dictionary of National Biography When I look at the articles on Handel, on Dr. Arnold, or indeed on almost anyone whom I know anything about, I feel that such a work as the Dictionary of National Biography adds more terror to death than death of itself could inspire. That is one reason why I let myself go so unreservedly in these notes. If the colors in which I paint myself fail to please, at any rate, I shall have had the laying them on myself. The World The world will, in the end, follow only those who have despised as well as served it accumulated dinners. The world and all that has ever been in it will one day be as much forgotten as what we ate for dinner forty years ago. Very likely, but the fact that we shall not remember much about a dinner forty years hence does not make it less agreeable now. And after all, it is only the accumulation of these forgotten dinners that makes the dinner of forty years hence possible. Judging the Dead the dead should be judged as we judge criminals, impartially, but they should be allowed the benefit of a doubt. When no doubt exists, they should be hanged out of hand for about a hundred years. After that time, they may come down and move about under a cloud. After about two thousand years, they may do what they like. If Nero murdered his mother, well, he murdered his mother, and there's an end. The moral guilt of an action varies inversely as the squares of its distances in time and space, social, psychological, physiological, or topographical, from ourselves. Not so its moral merit. This loses no luster through time and distance. Good is like gold. It will not rust or tarnish, and it is rare, but there is some of it everywhere. Evil is like water. It abounds, is cheap, soon fouls, 
but runs itself clear of taint. Myself and my books. Bodily offspring I do not leave, but mental offspring I do. Well, my books do not have to be sent to school and college, and then insist on going into the church or take to drinking or marry their mother's maid. My son. I have often told my son that he must begin by finding me a wife to become his mother, who shall satisfy both himself and me. But this is only one of the many rocks on which we have hitherto split. We should never have got on together. I should have had to cut him off the shilling either for laughing at Homer, or for refusing to laugh at him, or both, or neither, but still cut him off. So, I settled the matter long ago by turning a deaf ear to his importunities and sticking to it that I would not get him at all. Yet, his thin ghost visits me at times, and, though he knows that it is no use pestering me further, he looks at me so wistfully and reproachfully that I am half inclined to turn tall, take my chance about his mother, and ask him to let me get him after all but I should show a clean pair of heels if he said yes. Besides, he would probably be a girl. Obscurity. When I am dead, do not let people say of me that I suffered from misrepresentation and neglect. I was neglected and misrepresented, very likely not half as much as I supposed, but nevertheless, to some extent, neglected and misrepresented. I growl at this sometimes, but... If the question were seriously put to me whether I would go on as I am, or become famous in my own lifetime, I have no hesitation about which I should prefer. I will willingly pay the few hundreds of pounds which the neglect of my works cost me in order to be let alone and not plagued by the people who would come round me if I were known. The probability is that I shall remain after my death as obscure as I am now. If this be so, the obscurity will, no doubt, be merited, and if not, my books will work not only as well without my having been known in my lifetime, but a great deal better. My follies and blunders will the better escape notice to the enhancing of the value of anything that may be found in my books. The only two things I should greatly care about, if I had more money, are a few more country outings and a little more varied and better cooked food. 1882 P.S. I have long since obtained everything that a reasonable man can wish for. 1895. Posthumous Honors. I see Cecil Rhodes has just been saying that he was a lucky man, inasmuch as such honors as are now being paid him generally come to a man after his death and not before it. This is all very well for a politician whose profession immerses him in public life, but the older I grow, the more satisfied I am that there can be no greater misfortune for a man of letters, or of contemplation, than to be recognized in his own lifetime. Furthermore, the greater man is, and hence the greater the misfortune he would incur, the less likelihood there is that he will incur it. 1897. Posthumous Recognition Shall I be remembered after death? I sometimes think and hope so. But I trust I may not be found out, if I ever am found out, and if I ought to be found out at all, before my death. It would bother me very much, and I should be much happier and better as I am. 1880 P.S. 
This note I leave unaltered. I am glad to see that I had so much sense thirteen years ago. What I thought then, I think now, only with greater confidence and confirmation. 1893. Analysis of the sales of my books. Erewhon. Copies sold. 3,843. Cash profit. 62 pounds, 10 shillings, 10 pence. Cash loss. Total profit. 69 pounds, 3 shillings, 10 pence. Total loss. Value of stock. 6 pounds, 13 shillings, 0 pence. The Fairhaven. Copy sold. 442. Cash profit. Cash loss. 41 pounds, 2 shillings, 2 pence. Total profit. Total loss. 27 pounds, 18 shillings, 2 pence. Value of stock. 13 pounds, 4 shillings, 0 pence. Life and habit. Copy sold. 640. Cash profit. Cash loss. Four pounds, seventeen shillings, one and a half pence. Total profit. Seven pounds, nineteen shillings, one and a half pence. Total loss. Value of stock. Twelve pounds, sixteen shillings, three pence. Evolution, old and new. Copy sold. 541. Cash profit. Cash loss. 103 pounds. 11 shillings. 10 pence. Total profit. Total loss. 89 pounds. 13 shillings. 10 pence. Value of stock. 13 pounds. 18 shillings. 0 pence. Unconscious memory. Copy sold, 272. Cash profit. Cash loss, 38 pounds, 13 shillings, 5 pence. Total profit. Total loss, 38 pounds, 13 shillings, 5 pence. Value of stock. Alps and sanctuaries. Copy sold, 332. Cash profit. Cash loss. 113 pounds, 6 shillings, 4 pence. Total profit. Total loss. 110 pounds, 18 shillings, 4 pence. Value of stock. 22 pounds, 8 shillings, 0 pence. Selections from previous works. Copy sold, 120. Cash profit. Cash loss, 51 pounds, 4 shillings, 10 and a half pence. Total profit. Total loss, 48 pounds, 10 shillings, 10 and a half pence. Value of stock, 2 pounds, 14 shillings, 0 pence. Luck or Cunning. Copy sold. 284. Cash profit. Cash loss. 41 pounds, 6 shillings, 4 pence. 
total profit total loss 13 pounds 18 shillings 10 pence value of stock 27 pounds 7 shillings 6 pence ex voto copy sold 217 cash profit cash loss 147 pounds 18 shillings 0 pence total profit total loss 111 pounds 8 shillings 0 pence value of stock value of stock 36 pounds 10 shillings 0 pence life and letters of dr butler copy sold 201 cash profit cash lost 216 pounds 18 shillings 0 pence total profit total loss 193 pounds 18 shillings 0 pence value of stock 23 pounds 0 shillings 0 pence the authoress of the odyssey copy sold 165 cash profit cash loss 81 pounds 1 shilling 3 pence total profit total loss 59 pounds 10 shillings 3 pence value of stock 21 pounds 11 shillings 0 pence the iliad in english prose copy sold 157 cash profit cash loss 89 pounds 4 shillings 8 pence total profit total loss 77 pounds 6 shillings 8 pence value of stock 11 pounds 18 shillings 0 pence a Holborn card copy sold 6 cash profit cash lost 8 pounds 1 shilling 9 pence total profit total loss 8 pounds 1 shilling 9 pence value of stock a book of essays copy sold zero cash profit cash loss three pounds eleven shillings nine pence total profit total loss value of stock three pounds eleven shillings nine pence cash profit sixty two pounds ten shillings ten pence Cash loss, 960 pounds, 17 shillings, 6 pence. Total profit, 77 pounds, 2 shillings, 11 and a half pence. Total loss, 779 pounds, 18 shillings, 1 and a half pence. Value of stock, 195 pounds, 11 shillings, 6 pence. 
To this must be added my book on the sonnets in respect of which I have had no account as yet, but am over a hundred pounds out of pocket by it so far, little of which I fear is ever likely to come back. It will be noted that my public appears to be a declining one. I attribute this to the long course of practical boycott, to which I have been subject for so many years, or, if not boycott, of sneer, snarl, and misrepresentation. I cannot help it, nor, if the truth were known, am I at any pains to try to do so. Footnote. Butler made this note in 1899, before the publication of Shakespeare's Sonnets Reconsidered, which was published in the same year. The Odyssey, rendered into English prose, appeared in 1900, and Erewhon revisited, the last book published in his lifetime, in 1901. He made no analysis of the sales of these three books, nor of the sales of A First Year in Canterbury Settlement, published in 1863, nor of his pamphlet, The Evidence for the Resurrection, published in 1865. The Way of All Flesh and Essays on Life, Art, and Science were not published till after his death. I do not know what he means by a book of essays, unless it may be that he incurred an outlay of three pounds, eleven shillings, nine pence, in connection with a projected republication of his articles in the Universal Review, or of some of his Italian articles about the Odyssey. End footnote. End of section 31.